Welcome to Men Are Nuts, a, po- a podcast about mental health, emotional health, physical health, and psychological health. M A N acronym Men Are Nuts. First, it started with man, then it went to men. Mental health in society. We have a very special guest for you. Will you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi Andy. Uh, my name is Matt James. Um, I'm an author of uh, a book called Saving Dad. And I also um, help people with mental health through nutrition and neuroscience. Matt, where are you? Where are you based? In the northwest of England, on the Wirral, so near uh, Liverpool and Chester. On the Wirral, Liverpool. Yeah. Are you? Are you? Are you? Oh, so I was about to ask: Are you a supporter? Of course, I'm a red. Yeah, everyone's either a red or a blue up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, we're having a good time at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because when I've been up there, um, quite I've been up there a couple of times, and um, they've said they've always say that they always say they're either red or blue. And funny enough, I did meet someone, and they said um, they supported Tranmere. That's it. No, that's the other one. Usually, um, usually it's Tramia plus one around here. Yeah, know, yeah. But no, it's like a religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Because yeah. um, even though I'm, even though I was based in, in even though I was based in, in Nottingham, um, I'm a Liverpool supporter myself. And uh, oh, yeah. oh, great. Yeah, I'm a Liverpool supporter myself. And um, I am in terms of when we if <laughs> talk about mental health, thirty years of um, thirty years of of hurt. Yeah. Well. Yes, indeed. Although hopefully, barring other recent hiccups, yep. uh, we'll make we'll put that good. Yep. Next yep few definitely. Weeks with a bit of luck. Yeah. Um. And like I say, when I've been to Liverpool, I've um. I I always say this: Liverpool make um the best comedians because they always make make. make yeah, it's a funny luck. city. And always... Do you know the story of why that, that why that's thought to be? No, no, no. Tell tell the listeners. Yeah, so if you go back to when Liverpool was a massive merchant trading city and we used to trade, you know, all over the world, um, it was a cash society, really, where all the guys, and it was typically men back then, would go down to the dock in the morning, not knowing kind of what work they'd do for that day. And they might be greeted with a ship from China or the West Indies or wherever it might be. So they had to very quickly... Uh, pick up a rapport with people from all over the world and not necessarily be able to speak the same language. So they reckon that the Scouse humour was born out of the fact that they would have to very quickly um, kind of make friends with people and trade with them and have a banter. So that's why it's thought to be that uh, the Scousers are so funny because they, they can literally, you know, strike up a conversation and try and try and get something going you know very quickly with anyone in the world so right okay that's that's the rumor anyway do you, do you fancy yourself a bit of a bit of a comedian yourself i think my days are done for that <laughs> <laughs> i think i used to think it was funny until because um, i used to live in i lived in london for 15 years when i came back um home i think i realized that there's probably half a million people that are funnier than me up here <laughs> <laughs> yeah so let's Let's talk about um, um, mental health and, and, and just your thoughts and, and you know, where your perspective and where you're coming from in terms of your, you've written a book and, and mm. you're strongly into, into what's happening around the world. Yeah, so my story, uh, it starts <clears throat> very early in my life. So um, 
a kind of chronicle through the book, really. So when I was three, I'm 47 now. Yeah. When I was three, um, I walked into the kitchen and saw a scene where my dad was crying his eyes out, being cradled by my mum and repeating the words, I can't, I can't. And I, you know, as a three-year-old, didn't understand what was going on. Um, but it, as it turns out, as I uh, got older, I <clears throat> realised that uh, this was the first instance of my dad's uh, depressive episodes. So he's bipolar by diagnosis. Right. Um, so my childhood was a mixture of what, I mean, some people would describe as um, my dad's I don't know about it, if it's if extreme highs is the, is the right phrase, but certainly more adventurous and risk-loving than the average person because of his um, illness. And some very, very, very deep lows. Um, and that has gone on for the last 40 plus years. Right. So the book Saving Dad Chronicles, the journey from me being very young, um, right. and then explaining how you know life was so um, as i say there were there were many instances where the dads as is quite typical in people that are bipolar they can be extremely high achievers when they are in a more heightened state so yeah we we did all sorts of stuff so we would go like he built a boat out of a kit and we trailed it you know a proper sized boat trailed yeah. it nearly two and a half thousand miles down to northern Spain with a young family Um, and he's been into sports cars lots of houses in the UK purchasing um, villas overseas um, bigger and bigger boats you know during those periods where he was kind of elevated um, because of his illness he's he's, um, really you know gone for it um, and that provided my life with a context of some really exciting times. But then what would happen was we'd see a sequence whereby whenever dad's depressive illness would bite, he would literally shed all the assets. So, you know, sell the villas, sell the boats, sell the cars, sell right. the properties in the UK. And so it was a roller coaster ride, really. So um, the book chronicles that roller coaster yeah. to try and bring it to life for people of what it's like to live alongside this illness but then also um, it started for me I've had three depressive episodes myself where it's interrupted my career you know significantly and um, the first one of those was actually when I was at uni so it interrupted my exams at uni and um, this was kind of life and history of our family replaying itself so what I'd seen in my dad someone that was suffering it was then starting to happen to me so um it's like history repeating itself really and um and that's been a consistent theme through my life over the last sort of three decades really where i've had to manage my mental well-being literally on a day-to-day basis the choices i make the relationships i get into the jobs that i do what i eat exercise the whole lot um and now I've made it a career, so you know I, I uh, was running a business, I sold that business and um, re-studied, we went kind of back to uni and um, studied neuroscience 
psychology and functional medicine, all these things, to try and finally understand what is this affliction that our family has been hit by. Yeah. Um, especially the men. So it goes back further than my dad, though. We did the family tree and we saw that of the of 11 people on the James side of the family, yeah. of 11, eight of us have been hit by mental health problems, which is just an astonishing percentage. Definitely. Definitely. So, are we are we looking at this because you, you, you've studied it? Are you are we looking at this as nature, nurture, or what 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 can we kind of what have you kind of deduced from from that? It's mm, a good question, actually. Um, well, I think there's some things that we can't dispute, and that is that people have um, a predisposition. Yeah. So um, the stats say that. On average, in the UK, one in four people will be affected. Now, I've seen data that suggests that in families where it's already pre-existing, that number jumps to three in four. So you're looking at 75%. Now, that would bear true in my family. Um, but it, you know, that's only just part of the picture, really. So through the work that I've done, um, I know that despite there being a predisposition, you can dramatically influence your chances and your recovery from mental illness depending on what you eat. So I've done all different elements of mental health. So I've done sort of mind training and um, meditation, all sorts of different things. But yeah. the one that really has the biggest impact in the work that I, I now do because of it, it is really is the quickest route into recovery is by being very careful about what you put in your mouth, basically. Yeah. Um, so food and drink. And um, there is, there's a whole body of evidence that people have got absolutely no awareness of. So we've been told a story about food and what's healthy for us. And this comes right down from nutritional guidelines from government. And unfortunately, for mental health purposes, a lot of it's wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, you and you as a sports person and you're very embedded in the you know, football world plus other things, um, you're probably very familiar with the carbohydrate model. So yeah. people fueling themselves through carbohydrate to give themselves energy to last 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you see in tennis, don't you, people, the players are eating bananas, bananas in the break yeah, and trying, yeah. to, trying to get glucose into them. Yeah. Now, for, for mental health, got to look at it slightly differently because there's a section of the population like me like my dad who are predisposed to depression uh, having carbohydrate based foods which convert into sugars in the body is the last thing you want to do so people like me we need fats so saturated fats and when was the last time someone told you that was good for you yeah yeah you know, everyone thinks that fat is bad, but for the brain, for the brain, to fuel is, the brain properly. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's it's made up of sixty percent fat. The brain and uh, the neurons in your brain are insulated by fat as well. Right. And if they're not insulated, then they don't work. <laughs> and that insulation is fat. So yeah. you've got to fuel your brain with the right things to give you the best mental health that you can achieve. And um, there's a whole education piece that needs to be done. That's that's the work I do. Yeah. Uh, to try and get the knowledge out there so that people can get informed about what they should be eating and what they shouldn't be eating because there's two sides of it really there's yeah. the stuff that is 
very bad for your mental health, which we need to be eliminating. Um, and then the stuff that we need to be eating more of. Um, but there's a, there's a whole agenda with, around food, with um, the food industry that are trying to clearly maximise profits. But yeah. that unfortunately doesn't lend itself well to optimising mental health. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's a, I mean, it, it's just vast, really. Um, so that that's uh, kind of the backstory, and then my my book Saving Dad tells the the story of how my dad has been hospitalised seven times with very severe depression. Uh, he's had suicide attempts, the whole lot, yeah. um, and he's had several hundred courses, believe it or not, of electric shock therapy. Wow! So um, yeah, so people when I tell people about it, they say, oh, I didn't realise that actually still happened, but um, in drug-resistant depression like my dad's got the, you know, there's been little alternative from the traditional psychiatric community so over a course of several decades dad's had hundreds of general anaesthetics followed by an electric shock to his brain to try and lift him out of depression right. um, and what happened earlier last year so about a year just over a year ago he was hospitalized for the seventh time very unwell and they couldn't administer electric shock therapy because they found two blood clots on his lungs. So they were unwilling to anesthetize him, which is necessary to do the electric shocks. So yeah, yeah. we were in a position where we'd never ever got him out of hospital without electric shock therapy, but we couldn't use it because of his, these blood clots. So we're in a kind of new territory really, whereby we didn't have anything that we could do to get him well. Yeah. And that's that me off on a journey of could I help to get him well using nutrition or using all of the things that I'd learned through my studies. Yeah. Could I develop a protocol based in science and based in nutrition to try and get him well? And that's the story that the book charts. It's that um, that quest of me going on this mission to try and learn as much as I could and then actually implementing a plan um, without giving the ending away too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was no, successful, no, no, no. You know? no. So, um, you know, it, 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 it works and it works for other people too. So having done that, that's a year ago yeah. and he's not had any treatment for over a year and um, hasn't been back into hospital. So it was the first kind of test case for me is to show, okay, does the theory work in practice? Yeah. And it did. So that gave me a platform then to help other people and then do more research and try and develop this as a protocol to help more and more people. And that's where I'm at now, you know, trying to get the message out there as much as possible that there's an alternative paradigm, there's an alternative way of treating mental illness and retaining mental health that doesn't require psychiatric intervention in the form of antidepressants or antipsychotics or whatever it might be. Yeah. That if you know what to eat, uh, then you can stay well and you can get well. So that's kind of my mission now, it's my purpose in life to try and get the message spread far and wide, hence doing things like this podcast. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, it's fantastic that you, you, you're, you're almost, you're striving forward and you, you know, you put your best foot forward to to not, not only just help your dad, but also members of your family, the future, and, and other people that may be listening. Um, I was, in the, you know, I was, I was going to, you know, I was going to, I was looking at this and thinking because people have mentioned it quite often to do with 
your you know your gut and your gut biome and, and, your, and your stomach how it more, how it's more important in a lot of respects it's it's almost like your brain it's almost the the the, the brain of your body in, in in a lot of ways it's probably a lot more important in a sense um, because like you said when you where you putting your foot in where you where you putting the food in um, and the right type of food that affects that will affect your your thought process and your and your your mental health and even if you do have uh, like depressive episodes or suicide if you're then if you're feeling down a lot of people will aim to go get sugars to try and lift them up that's right so um, yeah yeah so what yeah, yeah what, you're absolutely spot on the the, uh, the the gut microbiome is called the second brain yeah and one of the reasons for that um is that would you believe 95 percent of the serotonin that's produced in your um, entire body is produced in the gut, five percent yeah. is produced in the brain. Yeah. I mean, no one would pluck those numbers out of the air. They typically think because of antidepressants affecting serotonin, people yeah. tend to think that that is made in the brain, but ninety-five percent of it's made in the gut. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. So inflammatory depression, which is um, caused by eating certain foods, inflammatory foods that create inflammation in the gut lining, then transcends through the body, through an inflammation response from the immune system and crosses the blood-brain barrier. And then it make, gives you an inflamed brain. Yeah, and that was his... And it's depression, so that's one pathway to depression. So, yeah, yeah you're, you're spot on. It's, yeah, so that uh, it's suggest... really, really important. Yeah, so but, that would suggest you know, why... It's, it, it's new news, isn't it? Yeah, so that would suggest why stress, in the sense when someone gets stressed and it affects... People think obviously it's the mind and the mind goes, thingy, but it's really it affects the stomach because for a lot of times when you get stressed you, you struggle to eat and then um, you get yeah. acid build up and anything like that and so everyone thinks it's the mind that's doing it but it's not it's it's actually it's it's your stomach um, and it's about um, yeah. alleviating yeah. that stress to be able to put the right foods in to kind of cope with and having coping mechanisms um, yeah so you're right. Yeah, we treat we treat depression and mental illness in a very uh, disembodied manner in the West. You know, we tend to think cut your head off and at the, at the shoulders and treat the head. Where you're absolutely right, it's an, it's a full body thing, um, and it's controlled by something called the autonomic nervous system. Yeah. So there's a there's a series of nerves running through your entire body. It's orchestrated by the brain, um, but it involves every organ in your body, all your nerves, all your muscles, and um, it's that which holds the key. It's having balance in this system that very people, very few people talk about with mental health. That's absolutely critical to recovering mental health and, um, and retaining it is balancing the system. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a full body experience. Yeah. And you touched upon something there where you spoke about, um, yeah, obviously you've got your, your, your the past, and, and you went to the present, and that would suggest that what you're what you're doing, it's almost like this thing where we're, you know, I always say that we're in the age of, I call it the age of knowing, which is there's so many things out in the world now that, you know, by hook or by crook, with internet or whatever, you know, people are doing more research into things and finding out more things more than ever before, and yeah, quite often, sometimes some of the things we were told maybe lies. Some of the things that we were yeah. told may be um, lies and um, manipulation. Um, to, so, yeah. like you just said, mass consumerization, money. Um, 
um, pharmaceutical industry, and we, you know we can go into all those sort of things. But um, in a lot of respects, was if you're going way before that, it would have been people wouldn't have known. So it's almost like it's almost like um, how they used to operate on someone. They used to if you if you look at when when we look at the instruments that they used to, the way they used to operate someone, the, the, the instruments that used to be used to were horrific. Shocking, shocking. Do you see what I mean? So, and then as time's gone on, they've learned not to use those. You know, it, it, it went from I don't know whatever metal it was, which would rust, and you know, and it's and it's become more sterilized, and everything's been, become a bit more um, up to date in a sense. You know, and, and learning. So it's almost like you've, if you could have stepped back in time with the knowledge that you've got now, you could have maybe helped. Do you see what I mean? You could have helped your, in a sense, forefathers and, and fathers before, yeah. before that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think in psychiatry still today, we still use very blunt instruments. Yeah. And if you look at it, you know, look at the history of psychiatry, it hasn't changed for nearly a century. Yeah. Um, we're still knocking out the same old drugs okay. based on the same old hypotheses yeah. that largely don't work from a chemical point of view, they work from a placebo point of view, and um, the pharmaceutical companies are rubbing their hands, yeah. and meanwhile, patients suffer, and uh, it's not good enough, you know, I, I've been, I've seen too much of this, seen too much suffering to stand by and do nothing, yeah. so um, I'm setting up an alternative paradigm, and if people want to join this and get themselves well and stay well without side effects and doesn't it's not expensive you know food you can make your food choices sensibly then you know you can achieve health you don't need to put poisonous drugs inside your body yeah yeah now i'm gonna i'm gonna you know before we kind of you know because you know we're obviously we're on a topic here before we kind of move forward move forward into into you know what your plans are and, and going back what what was your you would have seen your dad in that you know in that state of mind and in, in that state of um, his position and 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 being upset and 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 like you say um, ep- that episode you would have seen that and at what point did you at what point did you know or did you feel that you that mental health was going to be affecting you obviously not knowing that it was not, obviously not knowing that it was um, your... Yeah, no, I understand what you mean. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah so I can tell you what exactly when, so when I was 19. So um, I was at uni and um, I'd been home to study for my first year uni exams. And Dad was the first time I saw him as an um, adult. And I understood what was going on. Um, really, really, really unwell. So, um, I literally came home from uni, mum picked me up in the car from the station, and in the journey to the house, she said, oh, uh, well, ignore what your dad's saying at the moment. He's saying some funny things. So, rather than, and this is 92, 1992, so that was the landscape of mental health discussions at the time, you know, people didn't understand it, didn't talk about it, the language was completely different, and it was sort of swept under the carpet. Um, whereas when I got home, Dad was just a shadow of the 
person that you know I I knew um, he fell into my arms very tearful and that then had the knock-on effect of me being ill for the first time so when I went back to uni after studying in the holidays um, my body just shut down so um, I found myself in a position where I was trying to study for my exams and I couldn't read a book so um, went to see my personal tutor she could see it was serious and she said well you've got a choice either take the exams or maybe you should wait till the end of the summer and try and recover um, but I did take them but it, it just it was the first time to answer your question that I realised that um, this illness that I'd seen yeah. for you know, a number of years was part of me too yeah. um, but, but I mean with the context of being scared not understanding it yeah. not knowing the language not knowing what to do I mean now of course 30 years later nearly yeah. it's very different but then it's fear it's that I don't know what to do I don't know what's happening to me I'm scared um, I think that's how a lot of people feel because there isn't a um, an understood sort of pathway and a care provision like I, I volunteer for a cancer charity yeah. and in cancer for as, for as awful and as deadly a disease as that is there is a pathway you know you you have an oncologist you have a nurse you have a a treatment protocol yeah. you have chemo radio surgery with mental health it's a it's a bloody mess yeah a minefield you know people don't yeah it is and um it's it's very difficult for people so you know i learned through experience really over the course of decades of how this thing plays out and works but when you start out it's a scary place to be yeah yeah and and did you have a support ne- network around you at the time and you know you know was a you know obviously you were you was at uni were you away from home what during those 30 years did you have like a and and as each episode came along did you have a um, a network of people around you to kind of support you i would say on the whole because of the way i dealt with it no yeah. so it's not until really the last few years, and certainly writing the book, um, it's out there now. You know, there's no hiding place now. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I lay myself very bare yeah. in the book in terms of the journey that I've been on. But um, being a man and the messages that you're told from childhood, be a brave boy and don't cry and all that stuff, and you keep everything to yourself. Um, I would say no. I would say that I had people around me, but not people that I shared it with. Yeah. And you know, life's taught me that when you share some of these messages with people, they're not ready. You know, some people aren't ready, unfortunately, to hear it. So um, you have to find your confidants and your um, the people that you can talk to openly in certain places. I think I think everybody's comfortable talking about it. Unfortunately, it's changing. But um, you know the fact that we can talk openly about it, I don't think is typical of every man. Yeah. And um, the more we do this, the better it gets. Of course, it gets. But uh, no, I, I would say I didn't really have the, the network that perhaps would have um, helped me the most. Yeah. But that was largely down to me. Yeah. The way I dealt with it. Yeah. And the reason why I ask that is because you know, obviously, for the listeners out there, is 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 for a lot of people they don't have. Um, a network or they don't seem to have a network and 
like you say, when they start, if they do speak about it, they feel, or if they're going to feel, speak about it, there's a bit of a fear that they're going to be judged or, yeah. or, the, yeah. or they're going to be ostracised. Um, and also, you know, just, and, you know, another thing as well I want to touch upon is what was, because you're now here, you're now, you know, 30 years later, you're now here. What were your mechanisms, your, your things to help your coping mechanisms? You know, because something... you know what I think. I think it was. I think it was digging. Yeah. I think it was not the right way to do it. I wouldn't recommend people follow my path. Yeah. Um, it was through just try and do it yourself. Just yeah. struggle on. Um, and we've got. You know, we're, we're a very stoic family. Really, we're kind of self-starters and probably too much. And rather than asking for help. I would, I would suggest people do the opposite of what I did, actually. Yeah. Um, I think I fought away for a long time. And what history's taught me is, is that when you do talk about it, your fears aren't realised. You know, it's not it's not scary like you think it is. There's, there are people that care and there's people that will help you. And I found an overwhelming response to the book. You know, I'm publishing that. So many people have come out and said... You know, I struggle, my dad struggles, my wife struggles, my son struggles, whatever it is. And everyone's got a story. Yeah. So I'd really like to push that message for people if they're struggling. Don't suffer in silence like I did. It just prolongs the agony. And um, you'll get better quicker by sharing it. Yeah. So, so on, a, on, a, on, a, on a note, and you're here now and you're telling your story, what would you, you know, what would be your kind of lasting, not lasting words, but your words to, to, if somebody's listening to this who may be going through similar problems, what would be your words? I think the first thing is um, I know with absolute confidence through the journey that I've been on, the work I, that I do is the, re- the journey to recovery is absolutely possible for you. Absolutely. And you, the, the mind and your belief plays a big part in your recovery, so um, unfortunately, this illness, when it's depression, it, it plays kind of tricks on you. You know, it's like, oh, you'll never get better and you're worthless and all these kind of things. And the polar opposite is the truth. And I know that through 40 years of experience and now working in the field, that recovery is possible for everybody. And it just needs, the first thing that needs to be done is you need to share it. So making sure that you're not alone on the journey. And then it's about educating yourself um, and getting support to, to help you to do the right things. So, I mean, I've got a couple of resources that people can look at. Um, it's all free. So I developed a course that's um, free online, which you can, if you go to the, thethrivecourse.com, there's a series of 38 videos there, and it takes you through um, a journey, really, of, of, of recovery, how to achieve um, recovery um, and then I've got more resources on my other website which is just my name mattjanes.com um, with more resources so you know the, the stuff is out there um, know that you can get better and don't suffer in silence and use those resources you know if, you, if you've got to access the medical community do that and I'm not saying that my approach is the only way um, but don't, don't stay isolated. You know, it's really important to get in community and, and share and start getting um, the help that you need. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks for that. And you know, um, um, uh, you know, I'd like to, I'd like you to have, have you back on again at some point, um, and you know, tell a bit more about some of the things that you, some of the things that your work you're doing, and 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 how you can help people. Can you let um, let listeners know where you can be found? You've talked about your website and just just your book. You know, where can your book be found? Yeah, so uh, Saving Dad is available on Amazon or at savingdad.co.uk. And um, yeah, so it's been really well received. And it's, I think it's acting as a bit of a confidant to people. So you can, if you're struggling, you can read it and know that you're not alone. Other people have walked the same path as you, they've worn the same shoes as you. And there's a, it's a very hopeful story. So whilst I tell the story over you know, a period of my life where things have been difficult, um, it shows that there's absolute hope for everybody. So hopefully people can get a lot of um, inspiration from it. And then, yeah, my two uh, resources online, thethrivecourse.com and then mattjanes.com. They can find all about um, what I do and how I can help. Yeah. All right. So, you know, I hope, you know, this 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 carries on and you, you know and people are listening and 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 can access access you and access your courses and and um make a change in their life um i'd like to thank you for coming on and and speaking on the podcast oh, you're welcome andy um it's been fantastic cheers andy cheers and hopefully in a couple of weeks time henderson will be lifting that cup yeah, let's hope so. And then we'll have the Champions League as well. I'll make a nice double A. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather. The greedy pass. Yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather the 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 league to be honest. But yes, if we can have both, yeah. that'd be brilliant. <laughs> All right, indeed. Then. Nice Good stuff. And that was men are nuts, and see you again.